Our scripture reading today is Psalm, comes from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Worship team, thank you for leading us this morning. Before we look at the passage together, I want to bring something to your attention. Um, on Friday evening, we had a midnight prayer gathering here at Redeemer. And so that means that many of you didn't get to participate because, well, it was at midnight and we didn't have child care. So one thing that rose up out of that prayer gathering was an amazing gift to our congregation and an amazing tool. And it was this prayer guide that was written for the prayer gathering. So there's two ways this could be used. One, if you don't know how to pray, if the idea of praying is new to you, this guide is written to, to show us ways to, to approach God and ways to cry out to him. And so take it. Second, if you're a part of this congregation, this guide has been written to lead us in very specific prayer for God to do very specific things here in our congregation. For example, if I said, hey, would you pray for our elders? You would probably say something like this. Dear Lord, please bless our elders and give them wisdom. And by the way, if you want to pray that, always, always pray that. But page seven of this guide lists them all by name. And I would hope that as looking over this guide, you would be moved to pray for them as individuals and to pray for their families and to pray for their lives. Another example if I said, would you pray that the children of our church um, would be led to come to know Christ? You might pray something like, Lord, please lead the children of our church to know Jesus and to trust him and to follow him. And if you would be moved to pray in that way, please do. But page seven says this. In the pre-K-4 class, Catherine Craig, Melissa Farmer, Suzanne Mosley, Lucy Seaver, and Brittany Shaver, they're teaching those kids. So let's pray for them by name, that the Lord would fill them with his spirit, that the Lord would move them to teach the gospel with clarity and with love and with compassion. And then it lists all the kids that are in that class. So if you have any affinity for this church, all I'm saying is would you join me in making this guide a central part of your praying? There are paper copies back in the back. Um, we emailed to you an electronic copy on Thursday and we've posted both yesterday and today to our Facebook page an electronic copy of this. So if you're a paper Bible reader, grab a copy, fold it up, put in your Bible, and let's pray with great specificity that God would move in powerful ways here in our congregation. I read on my iPad, so all I did is I took the electronic version, I put it in my iPad right beside my Bible, so that as I read the scripture, the prayer guy's right there. So we had a great prayer gathering on Sunday, Friday evening. I believe God's going to move. God's going to work. But what if that guide becomes this, this just fount 
of specific praying for our congregation. If you're a community group leader or a Sunday discipleship study leader, hey, get one of these. Put it in front of your group. Make this how we pray, right? Let, let's, let's let prayer, let's, let's let Friday evening not be the beginning and the end, but the beginning of a, of a, a, a movement that's just going to resound and resound and resound and resound because we're not going to stop coming before the throne and begging of God to work in this congregation because we do all this so that he would receive glory and we would experience his greatness. And let's pray that that would happen more and more and more. Let's pray together. Fathers, we look at your word now. I pray that you would show your greatness to every person in this room. And I pray that no matter what burdens, struggles, doubts, fears, sin, unbelief, questions we brought into this room today, that an overwhelming tide of joy in you would settle on all of us. Now, Lord, I can't accomplish that. No human can. But your word tells us that you're able. And not only are you able, but you're eager. And so we ask you to work in this way. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen. So this morning, from Psalm 47, we're going to talk about worship. Our sermon is entitled, uh, The Expression of Worship. So as we begin... I just have a few introductory comments for us. Simply stated as possible, worship is expressing to God the appropriate response for what he's revealed to be true about himself. Worship is expressing to God the appropriate response to what he has revealed to be true about himself. Now let me tell you something that horrifies me. The church consultant crowd would say that no congregation is going to be more expressive in worship than its pastor. That's a problem, people. It's a problem. All around. So I want us to be shaped by Psalm 47 and all the counts of Scripture not shaped by the personality of me because, well, that's a problem. So let me begin with something as we think about the gathered church worshiping. Because that's what Psalm 47 is. It was a song written for the gathered people of God to worship him. So if you think about that, I want to be really upfront with you. I'm deeply opposed to the practice of worship as entertainment. The worship of the gathered church is not about watching and observing. It's about participating, engaging, emoting, and expressing worship. But as soon as I say that, it's important that we remember this. The antidote to worship as entertainment is not being somber, solemn, and sullen. There is a place, a right and appropriate place for lament in the worship of the church, but there is also a call to joy because our great God is the king 
and he meets us as we approach him. And my contention today from Psalm 47 is that our God is the great God and his worship in its full range is a gift to us. It's good for us. Let's learn to use the gift. I'll say that one more time. Our God is the great God and his worship in its full range is a gift to us. Let us learn to use the gift. You know, when we started Redeemer, we said we want Redeemer to be a place where it's okay to be sad. We want Redeemer to be a place where it's okay to hurt. We want Redeemer to be a place where it's okay to lament. And after 10 years, I think we're pretty good at that. And I don't want to lose that. Because a lot of you today, you want to lament. Because that's what God has you. And that's okay. But if we take the whole range of the scripture, I want Redeemer to be a place filled with joyful expression in God's greatness. And some Sundays we got a ways to go. Don't be like me. Be like David. Be like the sons of Korah. Be like the psalmist. So I'm going to stretch me and maybe stretch you this morning. But I want us to learn to see that the worship of God in its full range is a gift to us. Now, without bearing the lead, let me just say this. If you came here today in deep pain, deep agony, deep struggle, deep how long, O oh Lord, type of feelings, I'm very glad that you're here. I think this is right where God wants you to be. And I am not in anything that I say this morning attempting to discount the burdens that you brought through those doors with you. But I will say this. What Psalm 47 is teaching me, and I hope God teaches you, is that a big burst of expression to God will often flush all that mess out of the pipe. And it'll come back and we flush it again. And we flush it again. And we flush it again. And I guess that's a wretched sermon analogy, but... If it works, right? Our God is the great God and his worship in its full range is a gift to us. I want us to learn to use the gift in its full range. So the first point, if you're a note taker, our God is the great God. So here's the argument of the psalm. The psalm is going to say, express joy to God because God is great. Express joy to God because of who he is. Express joy to God because of his greatness. Express joy to God because his greatness will never end. Express joy to God because he's brought you into his family. Express joy to God. So we're going to start down here with all the because. Why should we express joy to God? And and the answer is because our God is the great God. To say that another way, the God whom we know through faith in Jesus is no mere tribal deity who only belongs to the church. 
The God who we know by faith in Jesus is the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the father of his chosen people, and who is the Lord over all the earth. And so one of the things that really breaks us out of our lethargy is the God who said, I'm for you. There is no bound to his power. And the God who says, I'm for you, there's no end to his greatness. And the God who says, I am for you, there's nothing that he's unable to do. And so the cry of this passage is, our God is the great God. And this comes right from verse 2. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Now, let's not quickly skip through that. Let's look at it. For the Lord, and as Zane helpfully showed us last week, anytime in our English Bibles we get that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know, one's 12 font and one's 10 font, anytime you get that, That is a signal that the Hebrew word there is Yahweh, which is God's covenant name, the name that he revealed himself to his people. God wants his people to know him as the Lord. And so that is saying to the people of Israel, hey, I'm talking about our God. Our God is great. But here's what you need to know. At that time, every nation had a God. That's air quotes if you're listening online. Every nation had a deity. That's what the word tribal deity means. This God over this tribe, and this God over this tribe, and this God over this tribe, and this God over this tribe. But what the sons of Korah are reminding the people of Israel here is, hey, our God, he is the one true God. He's over all of it. He is not just our God. He's over all the earth. There is no end to his power. There is no end to his mind. And that's what it says. Our God, he's the most high. He's a great king over all the earth. And so what this passage says is we've been brought by faith in Jesus into a covenant relationship with a God who is able to do all things because he made all things, because he reigns over all things, and because there is no end to his power. He is that great God. So if you go back to Psalm 46, which Ben preached for us a few weeks ago, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Man, all the tribes would have said that. What's different about our God? He can keep that promise. He can keep that promise. Because he's the one true God and the Lord over all things. So our God is no mere tribal deity. He is the the great God over everything. And he, the scripture says, is to be feared. And so the word, when the scripture talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean trembling in fear of him destroying us. Because He's the Lord. He's the covenant God. These are the covenant people. So fear means reverence. It means deep respect. It means awe. It means honoring God for who he is. 
And so it's just important for us to, to note the connection. Our God is the great God who is to be revered in all things. That's the link of the argument in this passage. And so for those of us wired like me, it's important for us to remember that revere doesn't mean solely somber, solely mellow, solely solely chill, and solely sullen. Reverence can be exuberant. Reverence can flow freely. But the argument of the passage is our God is the great God and he is to be revered in all things. So if if, if you can only give me 15 minutes, there you go. But I want to keep going because there's some really good stuff here. He displayed this power because he subdued all the peoples of the earth under the feet of his people, which is his way of showing He's over their tribe too. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. So the psalm says, God is the great God over all the earth who is to be revered. But it keeps going. Verse 8 and 9. There is no limit to the scope of God's greatness or God's power. There is no limit to the scope of God's greatness and God's power. Look at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. That's all an expression of what verse 7 says. For God is the king of all the earth. Now, here's where our modern minds go afoul. I say king, and you think about Harry and Meghan, and whether or not they're going to stay in Britain or come live in America. I say king, and you think about that show on Netflix, The Royals. I say king, and you think about all the machinations of the, the, the kingly class in a modern world. But I promise you, when the psalmist said king, that's not what anybody was thinking about. King meant protector. King meant provider. King meant the one who prolongs our days. Because the king controlled the army. And the king controlled the treasury. And the king controlled it all. And so when the scripture says, God is the king over all the earth... It's not saying he has a really cool position and does cool things on the weekends in a, in a nightgown. What it's saying is he is in power over everything. It's saying he's the provider. He's the protector. He's the one who's able to accomplish all things. He's the king over all the earth. All the nations, they're subject to his power. All the princes of the earth, they'll come bowing at his throne like the peoples of Abraham. And then you get this weird, obscure phrase at the end of chapter 9 that says, for the shields of the earth belong to God. And you're like, is the earth like the millennium falcon? Like, what does that mean? And what it means is the shields are the protection. 
all the powerful protection of the earth, it belongs to God too. There's nothing that's outside of his control. And so this psalm is shouting this bedrock of hope that our God is the great God of all things and he's to be revered. So my question to you today is how do you respond to this one true God? Because trust me when I say he doesn't need us to trust him to make him the God. He is who he is and he always will be what he always has been. But this God built a people and a line that ultimately resulted in his son Jesus who is also the who is also part of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, coming to earth, living a completely holy life, dying on a cross, giving his life as a sacrifice for the sin of a sinful humanity, and rose again to display his victory over sin and death. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one knows the Father except through me. And so the question is, how do I approach this one true God who is the Lord of all? And what the scripture says is that if we approach him in Christ and we approach him in faith and we approach him in trust and in repentance and in lordship, that we belong to God as his covenant people and the one true God is now Yahweh over us. So do you know Christ? Because how we respond to Jesus is the answer to how we relate to this one true God. And if we know him, if we belong to him, if we're his children, if he's our Lord, the covenant God over us, then we can delight in his rule and we can delight in his power and we can delight in his love and we can delight in his work because he is our God who is over all So if it's true that our God is the great God, then the question becomes, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this truth? And what the passage says is, we express joyful worship to God. That's what the psalm directs us to do. So let's first look at what the psalm tells us to do. What are the commands? Look at verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Now, In the Hebrew language, the word clap, do you know what it means? That's right, Brian, I see you back there. It means to clap. Now, look, I'll just be really honest. I don't know what that means for Redeemer going forward. We'll have to figure all that out. But it seems that the psalmist thinks we should be all so overcome with God's greatness that it it moves our, 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 our our phalanges to get involved, right? Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Do you know what that means? It means shout. So I often get asked, like, why do I scream when I preach? I got an answer now, Psalm 47.1. God told me to. So there's that. I know I look angry. I don't mean to. It just is how God made me. I love you. (laughs) 
Clap your hands. Shout to God. Involve your whole being in responding to God's greatness. Verse 6. Now, repetition is supposed to mean something, right? So, so let's count. We can even count together. We can, the first service failed at this, so we'll see if y'all are better. Okay? Sing praises to God. That's one. Sing praises. That's two. Good. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. That's five. Five. If repetition means anything, what does the psalmist want us to do? Sing with joy to God. Now let's look carefully. Oh, hold on. So one scholar, his name's Derek Kidner. He said about this passage, he said, I don't think we understand that the, the, the impulse of the Hebrew if we, if we just say, clap, shout, sing, 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 sing. He said, what this passage is calling for is outbursts. It's calling for uncontrolled outbursts. Now, most of us know outbursts like this, an outburst of anger. Those are always sin, by the way, always. But an outburst, like we get outbursts when I say outburst of anger, like all the kids are like, oh, okay. Like, this is saying an outburst of joy. An outburst of praise, something which is uncontrolled, that's what we're being called to. He says, Kidner goes on, as if at a sporting event, cheer, 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 celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. That's what we're being called to. Now let's look at this this last phrase in verse 7. Sing praises with a psalm. Now doesn't that feel a little bit redundant? Like You're like, this is a psalm, and you're telling me to sing praises with a psalm in a psalm. Like, what's going on? Well, psalm means literally an artistic, poetic, intentionally thought through, beautiful expression to God of need or of his greatness. That's what a psalm is. And so what this passage is saying is saying use all your artistry. Use all of your skill. Write a song. Use your gifts. Employ all of it to tell as eloquently of possible, as possible as you can of God's greatness. So if you've got a songwriting skill, weave together beautiful expressions of God's greatness because they serve the people of God. If you can put things to a song, weave them together. So so the passage is saying, express joy, express joy artistically, express joy beautifully because God is great and involve the whole of who you are. Now, okay, pastor, well, how do I do do that? Well, I, I think a couple more thoughts from this psalm might help us. So now we've considered what the psalm tells us to do. Now let's consider how the psalm itself was actually used in the life of Israel. Let's consider how Psalm 47 was used in the life of Israel. So look right beside the number 47. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. You guys see that? Now, why would the psalmist give exhortation to a choir master? Anybody want to venture a guess? Because the choir master was going to lead the people to sing it. Psalm 47 
is not a contemplative prayer. It is an exuberant song of praise to God to be sung by God's people. Now, the the Psalms don't give us the melody and the tempo and the key of the Psalms, but I don't think I'm going out on an eisegetical limb to suggest that Psalm 47 was most likely not arranged as a dirge in a minor key to be uttered contemplatively. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. I don't think that was it. Now, I can't sing, so we're not going to go any further. But I don't think that was it. I think if you went to the synagogue or you went to the temple or you went to a festival where this song was sung, it would be a choir master moving you to express deep joy to God. Which pushes further. There are historical events behind this psalm that were celebrated. Look at verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Most scholars believe, and I think rightly so, that what verse 5 is referring to is when the people of Israel, Israel, under the leadership of David, the king, brought the ark of God to the city of God, where he would dwell and protect and provide for his people. And what we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, is that those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, and David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. I don't know if that matters. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. And so what's being talked about in verse 5 is God's presence manifested in the ark of the covenant actually went up an actual hill to Jerusalem under the shouts and the dancing and the singing and the applause of God's people. So, so literally, this isn't a metaphor, literally God went up with a shout. God entered his city with the shouts and the exuberant worship of his people. And scholars go further And they believe that on an annual basis, the people of Israel would remember this event by having a festival where they reenacted it. The people would go out to the hill. And you know what they would sing? They would sing psalms like Psalm 47. There's about 10 of them in the book of the Psalms that were written for this celebration. Now, why would they do that? So that the people could experience the joy of the greatness of God's salvation as did those who were there on the first time. God built into the worshiping life of his people for them to hearken back to his great delivering works and learn to celebrate it with exuberance. Now, The psalm tells us to see who God is and to express great joy in him. 
And the psalm shows us that it was intended to be used to help us do that. But what about those who struggle to find joy in God? What about those who struggle to express joy to God? What I want to put before you is that this type of unbridled expression might be what God uses to awaken our souls from slumber. And this type of unbridled expression might be what God uses to clear out some of the cobwebs in our soul. It might be that God would use this joyful, exuberant expression to force us to hope in Him. But it also might be that some of us are going through such seasons of difficulty and suffering right now, we just don't know how to begin. So let me give you an example, and then we're going to move on. Um, let's learn the lesson of Lane Kiffin. Can we do that? Um, I'm a Tennessee Vols football fan. And there was a time um, when we won just by showing up. The game might start bad, but eventually our dominance was going to be exuded, and we were going to win. And then Lane Kiffin happened, and it all fell apart. And there's a book written about it called Decade of Dysfunction. It's great. It's painful. It's like Psalms of Lament for 300 pages. So, so the fruit of that is that me and my sons are so jaded about Tennessee football that we can't find hope in anything. Right, Brian? I see you over there. Like we can't find hope in anything. This year, my son and I, me and my sons, we were at the BYU game, and Tennessee was winning with a minute and a half left. And my son says, hey, Dad, you ready to go? I'm like, oh, no, buddy. We're Tennessee fans. We're going to find a way to lose this. You know what? They did. And then, um, and then later in the year, we were watching the Kentucky game, this is where I kind of realized how um, much I have Tennessee PTSD. Um, we watched the Kentucky game. Tennessee was winning in the fourth quarter. And I looked at my son and I said, they're going to find a way to blow this. And he goes, oh, dad, I remember BYU. They're going to find a way to blow it. And so we're going back and forth about that. And my wife looks over at us and she goes, I'm leaving. You guys are so negative. You have no hope. Can't you just cheer for the players and have a good time? And she gets up and walks out of the room. And then the quarterback for Tennessee threw an interception, and we're like, see, we're right. And then they gave up, a, they got, then something else bad happened, and then something else bad happened. And all of a sudden, the other team is one yard away from winning with like eight seconds to go. And me and my son are like, see, we're right, we're prophets. And somehow Tennessee stopped them. Don't know how, still don't know to this day, and they won. And my wife looked at me, and she just said, see, just have a little hope, just cheer. Now, listen. I know whatever mess is, is, is clouding your life right now is far, 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 more important than anything about college athletics. But the point's the same, right? The negative stuff clouds away our hope that makes us believe nothing good is really going to happen, right? And I think what this passage says is a joyful jolt of God's greatness can flush a lot of that negativity out and remind us to hope in God. Which leads to the third usage of this psalm. The psalm was used as prophecy. 
Here's what I mean by prophecy. I don't mean like some strange number system. I mean this. The Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God, of Abraham. What that saying is, that's who God is. But right now on earth, it's not always experienced in its fullness and its totality. But what the scripture says is, there's a day coming when God will reign over everything and every foe will be vanquished. There's a day coming when there will be no enemies of the Lord that stand. There's a day coming when everybody who lives will be bowing before him and celebrating his greatness. And this psalm was written to say, have hope in God because he will do that. And we sing joyful, exuberant songs of praise to God as prophecy to remind us that he never fails his people and he will keep every word to the end. And so in the Revelation of John, he says it this way, Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces in worship saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And I just ask you, why did God show that to John? So that we would see it and we would believe it and we would preach that our God reigns like that. Let's believe it and let's worship him as such. Now, God, I pray that you would take all of this And you would work it deeply into the hearts of your people. I pray that whatever is helpful to us, you would cause it to be heard and to be believed. I pray that you would make us a church filled with people who are wired to express joy in your greatness. And I pray that our gatherings would be a place where we're drawn into your eternal, glorious worship. And I pray that our lives would be structured in such a way that the worship of you would reign in who we are. And I pray that who you are would win over our emotions today. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Now, as we do each week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But today, I want you to take the Lord's Supper maybe different than we normally take it. I don't know that we have to be somber and pensive because this is a declaration, a piece of bread symbolizing the body of Jesus broken for us, a cup symbolizing the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And as we take this, you know what we're saying? Death is defeated. Sin has no reign. We belong to God and to his kingdom forever and ever. And we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup as our hope in him. So here at Redeemer, we invite anyone who is a Christian 
Anyone who is a child of God, who has professed your faith in him and has made that known to the church, we invite you to take this bread and take this cup with us. And what we're saying is we have Jesus. Now, as we sing, you just respond however you need to because you're free to obey Psalm 47 here at Redeemer. And if that makes their work of passing things out harder, that's their problem. All right, let's go.